It's good to be back. It's really good to be back. Some of you might have noticed that I was gone for a couple weeks. Uh, if you did, I'm, I'm honored. I'm honored if you actually noticed that I was gone. That's probably a good thing that you noticed that. Um, but I was away for a couple weeks. I was, uh, I was in California for my, uh, so kind of the first residency of my, my doctorate I'm kind of working towards. And now you, you hear going to California, you think, wow, that sounds really glorious and luxurious. In, in reality, I left hot, sunny weather to get cloudy Vancouver March weather in Los Angeles. That's what happened to me. Such a ripoff, man. It's like at least 40% of why I chose that school because I like the weather. Failure, complete failure. But I did get to go to In-N-Out Burger four times. <laughs> so that was good. That was good. And um, anyways, it was, it was an awesome, it was an awesome couple of weeks in every other way. And I'll, I'll share about it at various times. Such, such a blessing. I'm with this cohort of 11 people uh, for three years. We're kind of looking at issues in culture, engaging mind in culture is what it's called. And so we talked a bunch about uh, politics, actually, because Americans love to talk about politics. And this might come as a shock to you, but they don't always agree on politics. Uh, I, I think most of the people in my cohort, they, most of them were on the same page, but in their churches, it's crazy. The political stuff in the U.S. I heard a story while I was down there about a guest preacher who had come into a church and had said, okay, I want everybody to stand up and greet each other, you know, like we do, like introverts hate, all of that stuff. Stand up, greet each other, but with a twist. I want you to say your name and who you voted for in the last election. Whoa! Right? Did I, did I say he was a guest preacher? Those guys have all the fun, man. They can say anything they want. They can do anything they want. Um, and the point was that if you feel uncomfortable doing this, like if you are afraid that your political convictions will disrupt your Christian unity, it's maybe a sign that your political allegiances are, are, are too strong. Your Christian unity is, is too weak. You know, if, if, if this is going to cause division, then something has gone wrong. Now, I think in Canada, we're obviously not as politically polarized as the U.S. I, I think that could still be an uncomfortable exercise, especially for those of us like me who voted for the rhinoceros party in the last election. I'm just kidding. I didn't do that. It is a real party, but I didn't vote for them. But uh, I, I could see how that would be a little uncomfortable even for us Canadians. But, but the reality is that we, we can divide in the church over all kinds of things. So another, another guy in my program, he is a pastor in Georgia, and he was telling us that there's a church in his town that's called Macedonia Baptist Church. And across the street, there's another church. And you'll never guess what the name of that church is. New Macedonia Baptist Church. <laughs> I, I don't know what caused the split. I was just in awe of the chutzpah to like... You know, you'd think you would name it a different name, but it's like, no, we're the, those are the old fuddy-duddies over there. We're the, we're the new guys. We're the, we're the cutting-edge ones over here. But what a terrible witness to the community, right? Like, to have those two churches right there. I mean, that, 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 kind, of, that kind of division is painful. But here, here's a little bit of, of good news, and it's going to sound a bit strange, but a little bit of good news is that this is actually not, this is not something that we just kind of came up with in, in recent decades, dividing over each other. This isn't unique to us. And it's not even just going back to the Protestant Reformation, like, you know, the church was doing great until Martin Luther and those dastardly Protestants messed it all up. It's, it's not that. It, this actually is just a, it's a, it's a human tendency, of course. And it's been a temptation for the church ever since the beginning, in the first century. 
The church in Corinth was wrestling with this stuff. We've been looking at this, at this church in, in Corinth for the last uh, month or so. We're looking especially at the relation. There's the map. Look at that map. There it is. Corinth in modern-day Greek. Uh, Greece. Greek is not a country. Greece. Um, uh, and, and so we've been looking at this church, this church, and the relationship issues that they were experiencing. It was a pretty, it was a pretty messed up church. They had, a lot, they had a lot of problems. And one of those problems was divisiveness. And so the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at some of the causes of that. Today we're going to look at how division was caused by allegiance to different leaders in the church. And we'll look at how that kind of plays out in our day as well. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And in, just to mess you guys up, in chapter 3 as well. But starting in, in chapter 1, verses 10 to 13. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters... In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. And still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Let's flip ahead a couple chapters. Chapter 3, Paul continues his thought. Brothers and sisters, I couldn't address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You're still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one of you says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. It's always good when we come to the scriptures, the Holy Spirit-inspired word of God, that we look at the context, because because God's word spoke to real people in real places about real issues back in the first century, and he, and he does the same today. So we look at the context, we look at what was going on then so that we have a better understanding of how, how it speaks to us today. And, and Paul kind of gives us the situation. He says that in the church, there, there were all kinds of divisions happening over allegiances to different leaders. So he kind of breaks it down. He says, some people are saying, I'm, I'm a Paul guy. I love Paul. He's, he's, my, he's my leader. He's the one that I follow. Now, Paul is the guy who wrote this letter, really important figure in the early church. He actually traveled to Corinth around 50 AD. He told people about Jesus got the church started there. And so some people would have said, well, Paul's like our spiritual father. Of course, he's our guy. He's the one we're loyal to. But there were others who were saying, no, 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 I, I'm an Apollos guy. That's who I am. I, I'm devoted to him. 
Now, Apollos, we've actually talked about him at the bridge recently. Nate preached a sermon essentially about Apollos a couple of months ago. Apollos was, he was a gifted speaker, a highly educated guy. He had come to Corinth after Paul had left. And, and the Corinthians, so they were, they were Greeks, right? They're part of that culture. And the Greeks put a really high value on public speaking. So the Corinthians, they were like, they were oratorical snobs. And, and Apollos really, he, he kind of, he fit that. He, he, was, he was really skilled. He was a really good speaker. And, and Paul didn't measure up to that. Paul actually says in 1 Corinthians 2 that when he came to Corinth, he came with fear and trembling and that he didn't speak with wise and persuasive words. Now, they were wise words, but not in the eyes of the Corinthians because they weren't skilled. They weren't polished in the same way that Apollos was. And so I, I think Paul felt a little bit of, I don't know, maybe a little bit of insecurity here or just, just knowing that in the Corinthians' eyes, he didn't measure up to Apollos. So some people are going, that's, that's my guy. Forget Paul, I'm about him. Other people said, well, I choose a third option. I'm for Cephas. Now, Cephas was, that's the Aramaic term. I'm a Cephasite, <laughs> I guess is what they might have said. Cephas, uh, Cephas is the Aramaic term for, for, for Peter. So that's that, the, that translated into Aramaic would be Cephas. Uh, and Peter, as many of you know, he was, he was like an original disciple. He was there from the beginning, one of Jesus's kind of inner core of disciples. And so some people in Corinth might have been drawn to him for that reason. Peter and his wife seemed to have come to Corinth at some point as well after Paul was there. And maybe some people in Corinth said, well, this guy, he's, you know, he, he's OG. You know, he's, he was there from the beginning. These other guys are latecomers. We're sticking with the guy with tenure. And then still other people said, well, I, 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 I'm a Jesus guy. Now, maybe, I mean, everybody should have been a Jesus guy. But, but these guys might have just been thinking about Jesus as being one option among others, right? Just, oh, here's, here's another option kind of on an equal level, but that's the one that we're choosing. So that might have been going on with, uh, with that. So that, that, that's kind of the situation. It's, it's basically like a March Madness basketball bracket of, of preachers, right? It's like, who you got? You know, I got... I got Apollos, you got Paul, he's weak, you're going down. You know, and they're all just kind of at each other. So where did this come from? Where did this competitiveness come from? Well, in chapter three, Paul says that they are worldly. That's where he says it's coming from. It's coming from your worldliness. And, and what does he mean by that? Well, this was actually probably the big issue in Corinth that kind of ties a lot of the issues in this church together. That in so many ways for the Corinthians, how they thought about the world, how they viewed themselves, how they treated each other in relationship to each other, so much of that was formed more by their surrounding Greek culture than by the gospel. Uh, we saw this a few weeks ago when we talked about sex. By the way, do you like how I, how I did that? How I just preached about sex and then I just kind of ran away for a couple of weeks? You know, just kind of drop a grenade and then like run away? That's kind of, that's the strategy right there. <laughs> so so we, we saw this, how for the Corinthians, their view of sex was so shaped by, by the philosophers and, and thinkers of their day. And, and so they just kind of said, this, this, is how, this is how you do it. This is, this is how you live in this world. This is how you think about this. And they hadn't really thought about how the gospel transformed that area of life. And, and that was popping up all over the place, including how they viewed their leaders. 
So this is the kind of thing that would happen in Corinth. This is the kind of thing that was happening in the cultural context. Uh, you had these guys, these, they were philosophers, but primarily public speakers, these guys named sophists. These sophists, they, they were really prominent in that society. Again, Greeks put a high value on public speaking, and so sophists were like, they were, they were, they were the celebrities. They developed these big followings. They would be uh, participating in the assembly of the city. They would be the spokespersons when, when a delegation was to go from their city to another place. And, um, and, and they, they would run these really expensive schools for the next generation of social elite to learn how to think and to speak and so on. And so you were really lucky if you got your kid into one of these schools to become a, a disciple of one of these sophists. And if you became a disciple of a sophist, your job was to model yourself after, after your teacher. And that wasn't just it wasn't just how you spoke or how you thought, it was even how you walked, it was what you wore. If your sophist wears a fanny pack, you wear a fanny pack. That's, that's just what it means to be a disciple of one of these guys. Now, you only became a, a kind of a prominent sophist if you developed your own following. This is like, it's like social media influencers here. Like, you're, it's on you. You've got to develop the following. You've got to show that you're superior to the others. So there's, there was this intense competitiveness between these, between these sophists, where they'd be arguing with each other, shouting at each other, putting each other to shame, trying to show that, that you know, I'm superior to this guy and trying to pull disciples from that guy over to, to me. And the disciples of these, these sophists, they were in on it too. You weren't just kind of you're following after this sophist, you were supposed to go to bat for him against others too. And so there are even stories about a disciple of one sophist who would, who would follow another sophist through the street just waiting to catch him in some kind of grammatical error, you know, and then loudly proclaiming to everybody, he said advices instead of advice. What an idiot, you know? What a dum-dum. <laughs> my, my sophist would never do something like that. And so, so you're trying to put the other guy to shame, trying to prove that you are superior, your teacher is superior to all the other ones, right? So that's the kind of thing that was going on in Corinth. And what the Corinthian Christians had done is they had basically taken that blueprint of how you view leaders in the culture, speakers in, in, in culture, they basically taken that blueprint and they had laid it directly over top of the church and said, this, this is how you do it. This is how you think about leaders, you know? And, and so all of these different people who have come and visited us, they're all, that's a blueprint, by the way. That was the idea there. Uh, all of these different people who have come to us, all of these different speakers, we, we, it's not like all of them are together in this. Obviously, these are different parties, different sects. We're, in, we're competing with each other in this. And if I'm for Cephas and you're for Apollos, we're mortal enemies until you admit the, the superiority of Cephas. So that was kind of what was happening there. Now, before we look at what Paul says about this, let's just ask this question. Do we do anything similar today? <laughs> yep, uh, we do. That was, that was not going to be a no to that question. Uh, we do do this. And, and we could ask even at a basic level, uh, do we do this in general where we take the blueprint that our culture gives us and just kind of we apply that to the church unthinkingly to our detriment? I think we do do that as, as well, quite a bit. I mean, one example of many 
would be, I, I think you, you have this phenomenon of church hopping sometimes that happens in, in our culture where people just kind of sometimes will bounce from one church to the next, to the next. And, and sometimes there's very good reasons for leaving one church and going to another. But I suspect that part of this comes from living in a consumerist society where, you know, you're, you stick with a company as long as it's giving you the best deal. But the moment that you get a better deal somewhere else, you're, you're gone, you're out of there, right? Uh, so I, I think some of that kind of seeps in sometimes when we think about the church in the same way. Again, I'm not saying if you've come to the bridge from another church, out of here, go. Uh, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just saying, I think some of these cultural values can kind of seep in and, and we kind of start becoming more like, more like Corinthians than, than Christians. And I think we do this with leadership as well. In some ways, this is the plague of denominationalism. That, uh, that we've seen, especially in the Protestant church for, for hundreds of years, right? Where you got the Presbyterians and they're like, yeah, we've got it all figured out. We're, we're right because we go back to John Calvin. We do what he says. That's, that's why we're right. You got the Mennonites. We're like, yeah, well, we, we, we have Menno Simons and nobody has any idea who he is, but we're all about Menno Simons. And, and then you got like the, the Catholics and like, well, we're right because we've got the Pope, you know, and that goes right back to Peter. Then the Pentecostals are like, well, we're right because we follow the Holy Spirit. And who can, who can argue with that, right? I mean, that's, that's probably the best one so far. But... We have all this like competitiveness where, where denominations see each other as rivals instead of as, as joint heirs of Christ. And I, I think that's probably not as big of a deal today. I, I think some of those denominational loyalties have weakened, maybe for the better. Um, but, but still, I think that's certainly been an issue in the past 100, 500 years at least. I think a bigger issue, though, is that in the church today, people latch on to particular movements or particular preachers, and they kind of become devoted to this, to this preacher and like anything they say, that, that's, that's what's true. I, I'm not going to question it because I'm all in on this, right? So maybe, maybe you're, uh, you're a John MacArthur guy and everybody else is just a watered-down liberal wussy, you know? Maybe you're a David Jeremiah guy. Whatever he says about the end times, that's what's got to be true. Maybe you're, uh, you're devoted to Bethel, right? And you're like, if there's not a glory cloud in worship, worship hasn't really happened. <laughs> you know, those, are, those are probably unfair stereotypes. And some of you are like, I have no idea what any of those things were that you just said. You might even speak in Greek. I don't really know. Um, but the, po the point is that we kind of latch on to a particular person or movement and we just kind of think that's, that's the whole kingdom right there and everything, everything else is kind of imperfect. And you kind of see these guys, well, like, I'm devoted to him, so I can't listen to that one over there. I think that kind of thing happens. I think we see it in politics for sure. I mean, let's, let's, I mean, I spent a couple weeks in the U.S. talking to a lot of American Christian leaders, and uh, it's pretty clear that in the American church, you've got a large number of evangelical conservative Christians who have latched onto a particular person, onto Donald Trump, and have kind of said, whatever he says goes, no matter what the evidence is contrary to it, no matter what character flaws exist, that's our guy, no matter what, like, Oh, man, I just, I don't know. You know, and then on the other side, of course, let's just say that the, the Democrats in the U.S., that's a whole clown show of its own. And you've got liberal Christians, progressive Christians who are signing in all in on, on that. That's a, whole, that's a whole other deal, okay? But the point is we, we kind of latch on to politics. And that's what I was saying before, that politics becomes a means of division in the church. May it not be. It's not the way it should be. 
And so I'm not saying, I'm not saying get rid of leadership. That's it. Fire me. I'm out of here. No more leaders. I'm not saying that it's wrong to vote in elections or even to be part of a, a political party or to be associated with a particular denomination or to be drawn to certain preachers over others. The problem is when that human leader or that human institution claims a higher allegiance in our lives than the kingdom of God. That's the problem. If, if our allegiance to that leader arouses hostilities in us towards other believers, other brothers and sisters in Christ, we've got a problem. That's when things have gone off the rails. It's, it's, it's not like this is bad, get rid of it altogether. It's, it's a right ordering. It's, it's a reordering of where our allegiances are supposed to be. And I think in our culture, that's gotten kind of messed up. It's kind of gotten turned upside down a little bit. So let's look at what Paul says about this. We've already been alluding to what he says is wrong about it, but let's, let's look a little bit more. In verse 13, he asks, is Christ divided? Um, I mean, that's, that's uh, a, a pretty powerful symbol, right? Christ being divided. That's how, that's how they've kind of treated Jesus by their quarreling and, and dividing with each other. But, but keep in mind, actually, we can even take that further. Paul, later on in 1 Corinthians, he talks about how the church is the body of Christ, the living manifestation of the presence of Jesus in the world. And so essentially, what the Corinthians have done, I think if we could paraphrase Paul, is that they have ripped an arm and a leg off of Jesus and are fighting each other with them. How's that for an image for you on a Sunday morning? And Jesus is going on the sideline. He's like, can I have my arm and my leg back, please? Like I was, had other ideas in mind for this. But that's what Paul is asking. Is, is Christ divided? That's, what, that's how you're treating him. That's what you're doing with this. And then Paul asks two other questions. He says, was Paul crucified you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? See, what Paul is doing is, is he's taking some of the central realities and events of the gospel, and he's pointing out how Paul and Apollos don't really have anything to do with those things. Like, I've been a pastor for a while. I've heard, I've, I've heard a lot of crazy things. I've never heard anybody get baptized in the name of Apollos. Haven't seen that one yet. Never heard anybody say that Paul was, died for their sins. I've, ne I've never heard that before. Obviously, that's Jesus. And what Paul is pointing out is how absolutely bonkers it is for them to elevate other human leaders to the level of Jesus. Dividing Jesus and kind of acting as though everybody's playing an equal part. No, no, no. It's, it's all about Jesus. See, the upshot of all of this, according to Paul, is that the Corinthians are actually infants. And this is not how they thought of themselves. The Corinthians thought of themselves as uber-mature. They thought, they, they, they prided themselves on their rights, on their status. We've looked at that in this, in this series. The Corinthians prided themselves on the spiritual gifts that they had received. They prided themselves on, on how much knowledge they had, how much wisdom they had. You know, you can imagine them going, well, I know Plato and Aristotle and all these guys. They prided themselves on all of that. And Paul basically tells them, you guys think you're super mature. You think you're super grown up. You're actually babies sucking on a bottle. Can you imagine like an, like an adult who um, is sucking on a baby's bottle while telling you what a big boy they are now. That's what's going on here. They think they're super mature. Paul's saying, no, no, no. You guys are measuring maturity completely the wrong way. And we still do this, by the way. 
If we think about whether or not someone's mature, we usually think about, you know, how, uh, how much do they know? How many Bible studies have they gone to? How, how much money do they give to the church? How many people have they brought to, their, to the Lord? What's their attendance record like at church? 45%, 50%, that's pretty good. 75%, you're way more mature, right? Now, those are all good things. Attending church, leading people to Jesus, giving, uh, knowing more about the scriptures, all that's really good. But actually, Paul says that a better metric for spiritual maturity is how you treat others in the church. Okay, that was, there you go. How you, treat, how you treat other brothers and sisters in the church is a far better metric for spiritual maturity, especially, I would say, those you find difficult to love and get along with. I mean, this is what Jesus himself said. He, he said at the Last Supper, he's together with his disciples, his disciples who, by the way, would have never, 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 never hung out together before meeting Jesus. Some of these guys would have been mortal enemies. And here they are gathered together, and Jesus says to them, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's what Jesus said. If the world's going to know who I am, it's going to be by my people loving one another. This is, so by the way, this is not just like an internal thing. Like, come on, Christians, can't we get along? This is missional. This is evangelistic. This is how the world knows the truth. When, when, when people who aren't yet believers come to our church, they'll, they'll see the goodness and the truth of the gospel in the way that we treat each other. This is huge. This is everything. This is what spiritual maturity looks like. And so Paul says, Corinthians, you're, you're clearly not mature. You're still infants in Christ. And and this, this is how I know. Now, let's, let's talk just a little bit. Before we talk about what Paul says to fix this, let's, let's talk a little bit more about this division and unity thing, just to be clear on this. Just the fact that there are lots of different kinds of churches in our city, in our world, is not evidence necessarily of spiritual immaturity. Okay, it, I, I don't think that Christian unity means that everybody has to be worshiping in the same church together. We would have to build a significantly builder church and bigger church in that case. I don't think that's what Christian unity means. I, I think, in fact, God can use the diversity of expressions in, in the church that are all kind of preaching the gospel, but have these different kind of worship styles, maybe different points of emphasis. I think God can use that for good. And there are going to be reasons why a brother, a genuine brother or sister in Christ may not be able to worship in, in the same church. For example, if you're really, if you're really convicted about uh, baptizing infants who are growing up in, in a Christian home um, and you're having kids, the Bridge Church is probably not the church for you because I ain't dunking or spritzing your babies. <laughs> I mean, it's, just, it's, it's, it's just a differing conviction. And so if that's really, really important to you, you're probably going to go to a church that practices infant baptism. And, and that's okay. I may disagree with, uh, with that, that kind of understanding, but I see those people as genuinely my brothers and sisters in Christ. And we can have unity even if we're not in the same local church. We can pray together. We can serve together. We can make Jesus known together. So that the fact that we worship in different churches doesn't actually equal disunity. So that's one point I want to be clear on. The other point I want to be clear on is that there are 
times where division is necessary. You see, unity is not an absolute value. It's, it's a conditional value based on faith in Jesus. So if somebody is preaching an entirely different gospel, if someone is, is preaching that uh, you don't actually need to repent of sins that the Bible clearly names as sins, or that you don't really need to put your faith in Jesus in particular, or, or that uh, your good deeds will actually be sufficient to earn you God's favor, or that Jesus was just merely a human being. Those kinds of things, um, we're, we're, not, we're not on the same page anymore. We're, we're not in the same family. We're, we're not after the same thing at this point. And, and so Christian unity, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to love you, uh, but Christian unity actually isn't on the table here. This is why Jesus told us to beware of false teachers uh, who, are, who come to you like, like, like she, in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves. They're going to tear things apart. That's why uh, Paul writes to Titus, and he says that elders must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it's been taught so that, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. He, he even says that those, those false teachers should be silenced because they're disrupting homes. They're disrupting that gospel kind of trajectory in people's lives. So there are actually times where core theological truths are at stake, where people's salvation may be at risk. And, and those are times where unity is not an absolute value. Does that make sense? You see, the, the Corinthians in, in, in Corinth, they, they, weren't, they weren't arguing about big theological issues. Right? Paul had no theological issue with Apollos. In fact, he, he writes later on in 1 Corinthians, I'm telling Apollos he should go back and visit you guys. So there was no big theological issue here. Instead, it was division over personal preferences. It was division over prideful things, over worldly things, over, over allegiance to certain leaders over others. And, and similarly today, a lot of times when you have division over Christian, between Christians, it's, it's not because of some big theological truth that, that kind of puts the church at risk. Instead, it's, it, it's, it's hurt feelings. It's personal preferences. It's, it's, it's those kinds of things where we end up becoming rivals with each other. It's worldly. It's like Corinth. It's, it's got to stop because Christ is not to be divided in that way. Now let's look at what Paul says positively about how they are to fix this, how they are to live instead. Going back to chapter one, uh, Paul, Paul asks that they all agree with one another in what they say. Now, this doesn't mean they, they, have, to agree, they have to agree about everything that they say. One person says that he likes tacos. Another person says, no, actually, I think pokey is better. That's bizarre. That's wrong. That's dumb. But it's okay. You know, you could say that as Christians. You could disagree about whether tacos or pokey is better. It's not really a legitimate argument, but you can, you can do that if you want. Right? Like that, that's okay. A commentator suggests that we should be looking ahead to verse 18, which talks about the message or the word of the cross. That's what we are to agree about in what we say, what we say about the cross, how we understand the cross to function at the center of our faith, at the center of salvation. That's what every believer is supposed to be agreeing about. And likewise, Paul tells them, he appeals to them to be perfectly united in mind and thought. Now that uh, the word united is an interesting one. 
because uh, it's, it was often used in the Greek language uh, in a surgical context where you would have, uh, so if you had broken a bone and now you're setting that bone, you're, you're kind of bringing it together so that it can be, so that it can be mended. It was also used in the New Testament about uh, fixing fishing nets. So when the disciples are, uh, when they're called by Jesus, they're mending their nets. It's the same, it's actually the same word. There's holes in the net, they're fixing it so that it's functional again. And so the Corinthians are, they're breaking metaphorical bones. They're ripping metaphorical holes in the net. And, and by the way, just to take that analogy a little, a little bit further, I think, think about how Jesus calls us to... Um, to, to, to draw people into the kingdom. Talks about Peter being a fisher of men. Well, this is what happens when there's worldly disunity in the church is that you've got holes being ripped in the net. And now that net isn't able to catch people. Now people aren't able to be brought in to the kingdom in the same way. So this is what's happening in Corinth. There's these metaphorical holes, metaphorical broken bones. And, and Paul is saying, you've, you've got to come back together. You've got to seek restoration. You've got to be of one mind and thought. And what Paul is talking about there is that they share the same basic mindset about their life, about their calling. That, that no matter what differences they have about who they like more as a preacher, how they like worshiping, that they alike have been saved by grace and are called to use all that they have been given by God to make the name of Jesus known in the world. That their life is about the same thing. So stop dwelling on these lesser things. Look, look to what unites you. Look to what brings you together. So that's what Paul generally, or yeah, says kind of generally in chapter 3, he gets more specific about their view of leaders. So he says, okay, we've, we've settled that. Now, now let's talk about me and Apollos. Let's talk about this thing that you're arguing about. He says, don't you guys know that we are just servants? That's all we are. And that would have been radical in that, in that culture because the sophists never would, have, never would have described themselves that way. They were kings. People paid big money to listen to them, to follow them. But Paul says, look, we're, we're, just, we're just servants. And then he makes, it, he makes it even worse. He says, actually, all we are is farmhands. We're just, we're just watering the plants or planting the seeds. That's it. And, and for, the, for the cultural elite of Corinth, that would have been especially revolting to them. Right? These blue-collar, rural, hillbilly rednecks. Paul's saying, that's, that's what we are, guys. That's who we are. And you're arguing about who's watering the plants better. Can you imagine? You know, like, oh man, your guy uses a terrible setting on your, on your hose nozzle. My guy uses a way better setting. I can never be friends with someone like you. You know, Paul takes the charge out of, out of these divisions by kind of smashing their exalted perception of their leaders, right? He kind of says, what are you, what are you guys arguing about here? And again, that's not to say that leadership in the church isn't important. Uh, the Bible tells us that the teachers are worthy of honor in the church because, uh, because of the, the work that they do. Uh, Hebrews, has, uh, in, in the book of Hebrews at the end, we have this incredible verse where the author tells the church to have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Have confidence in them, submit to them. But notice, notice in Hebrews that he says, if you don't do this, then your leader's work will be a burden to them and that will be of no benefit to you. See, leaders of the church don't exist to be exalted. They exist 
to benefit others, to build others up. Same thing Paul says in Ephesians 4. He says that Christ gave the church uh, people like apostles and prophets and teachers and evangelists to equip God's people for works of service. Again, leaders exist in the church not to be glorified themselves, but to enable the whole church to glorify Jesus. And so that's why you should never put a leader on a pedestal. In fact, I would say the reason we see so many, so many moral failures of leaders in the evangelical church is because we have exalted human leaders. We've put them above accountability. We've put them kind of in this place where we just follow them unquestioningly instead of viewing them the way the scriptures view them as people who are worthy of honor, who should be submitted to, but only because they are helping the whole church glorify Jesus, building up the whole church. If it ever becomes about a leader, we've gone wrong here. It's always about Jesus. And that's what Paul says. That's, that's kind of how he finishes up in verses, uh, verses eight and nine. He talks about, look, in the end, this is God's work. I play a part. Apollos plays a part. But it's God who makes everything grow. This is, this, this is his thing. He's sovereign over it. He's, he's the one that, that we should be focused on. And, and then Paul comes to this question of, of, in the end, who do you belong to? Because in a Corinthian perspective, in that cultural perspective, you belonged to a particular sophist, a particular leader. And Paul says, no, 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 you belong to God. You are his field that he's tending. You're his building that he's constructing. So you don't belong to your leaders. In fact, your leaders belong to the church and everybody together belongs to God. That's, that's where you find your, your place of identity. This is so, so crucial whenever we come across division in the church. Whenever, whenever we experience this, this is the crucial point. This is, this is the key ingredient, is that no matter what other differences we might have, ethnically, culturally, personal preference, preachers that we like, disagreement about secondary or tertiary kinds of issues, in the end, we belong to the same family. We are united under the same name. That's why, why Paul appeals to them in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name that you have unity. It's in his name that you are bound together. And there's an important point here, by the way, for marriages as well. For marriages between two Christians. Now, we'll talk about relationships between, between believers and non-believers in the last ser sermon on this series in a few weeks. But, but let's just talk about marriages between two Christians. In any marriage between two believers, you have everything that you need to make that marriage work in Christ. Christian marriages sometimes do fall apart. It's true. But I would venture to say they only fall apart when something else has claimed a higher allegiance than Jesus. You might have political differences. You might disagree about how to view things that are going on in the world. You might have different convictions about money. You might have different expectations, all those things. Those differences are real and they're challenging. But I think Paul would say, if you are dividing over that, if a marriage is breaking up over that, I think, I think Paul would say, as difficult as that is, I think he would say that's immature. That's, that's worldly. 
Because as a follower of Jesus, you have a higher allegiance. And if you are married to another believer, and, and by the way, when I say this, I understand things have happened in the past and you might be carrying that brokenness. I don't mean to heap shame and guilt on you. There's redemption, there's forgiveness, there's grace. Let me say that very clearly. But I'm saying if you're in the midst of that right now, then, then, then what you've got to do, what both of you as believers need to do is, is you need to take your eyes off of some of those things that are dividing and you've got to turn your eyes to the one who unites you. You've got to turn your eyes to the thing that brings you together. And that's the name of Jesus. That you have both been saved by grace. You are both fundamentally heading in the same direction. Your life is fundamentally about the same thing. And so you've got to seek restoration and unity in his name. Let's wrap this up. Again, this is the thing. If you find yourself in divided relationships, look up. Look to the one who unites you because this is what happens. When your love for Jesus grows, that love overflows to others. When your eyes are lifted up, suddenly those things, those worldly things that kept you apart don't seem so big anymore. This is what happens in, in times when the Holy Spirit works powerfully in a people. Some of you know about the story of Asbury University in Kentucky earlier this year, where uh, this is a Christian university, a chapel service there, regular chapel service, turned into a 24-7 worship service for something like two and a half weeks. 50,000 people flocked to this little town just to get a taste of the palpable presence of God. And when you read stories, when you read accounts of what happened at Asbury, this is a recurring theme you hear, that what we saw was unity. What we saw was peace. What we saw was reconciliation. This is one example of, of many. There was one student who just said that this whole season had been a moment of healing, unity, and restoration. You had people coming from all kinds of different backgrounds, different convictions, different all kinds of things, but they came together in the name of Jesus and the result was this powerful, beautiful witness to the world of what the church looks like. May it be here. May it be at the Bridge Church. That added in a church where we do have so many differences. We, we can't afford to divide over those differences because I, I hate to break it to you. There aren't a lot of options in North Vancouver, okay? You're kind of stuck with us to some extent. But in a city like this where so many people don't know, Jesus, how crucial it is that we be a people that finds our unity in Christ, that love one another despite those differences because of what we have in common in Christ. And so as we love one another, as we do what the scriptures tell us to do, may we be this witness to our community of, of, of Christian love, of unity, of what others can be part of as well. And by the way, that's my, that's my invitation to you this morning. If you're here this morning and you are not yet a follower of Jesus, you might've heard this whole sermon and you've been like, well, that was 40 minutes wasted. I didn't, I, that had nothing to do with me at all. It had everything to do with you because it has everything to do with what you are being invited to be, to be a part of. That by faith in Jesus, you can enter into this family. You can enter into this family this bond in Christ by the Holy Spirit where you are part of one family. You have new brothers and sisters and fathers and, and mothers. It's open to you. Just have to say yes to Jesus. And so let's pray and, and then continue on in worship. 
I thank you, Lord, so much that the scriptures weren't just written to perfect people, but that they were written to deeply flawed people in broken, imperfect churches like ours. Lord, I thank you that I thank you that we don't have to um, we don't have to hide from how difficult and challenging unity is and, and we don't have to hide from our failures in the past that we can bring that all to you openly and that we can receive your grace in a fresh way, your grace that enables us, your love that enables us to love one another. So Lord, I don't, I don't wanna just kind of like heap a burden on people today and say, hey, you need to do this better. I, I, I wanna say, Lord, let us lift our eyes to you. Let us receive your grace, your forgiveness. Lord, let, let us receive all that you have done for us because of our failures. And may that be the thing that enables us to love others, to show others grace, to be able to forgive others because of how you have forgiven us. And I pray, Lord, for those who are here today who don't yet know you, and, and I pray, Lord, that the goodness and the beauty and the truth of the gospel, including the formation of a new people, a new family, that that would hit home and that my friends who are here today in that situation would receive you, would receive that gift and would enter fully into your people. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us at the Bridge Church in this way. If God has spoken to you through his word or if you're wanting to reach out to pray or just wanting to know more about our church, access our website. There you can connect with us and also have access to other contents. We are a church that lives to know Jesus Christ personally and to make him known. We believe that he is the hope of the world and wants to give you hope as well. We believe the best news ever has come in and through him. May you know him more and make him known today. We'd love to hear from you.